Story Traditions with James, Spring 2010 edition. Story Traditions with James, Spring 2010 edition. Story Traditions with James, Spring 2010 edition. Join me as we explore the Russian chronicles, myths, fairy tales, legends. Works done by Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Chekhov, among others. Don't go anywhere. James is on the air. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Story Traditions with James. This week we will look at The Blinding of Vasilko, a story I concluded my last show with. We will revisit that story. Then we will move into the Russian epic, uh, namely the story of Lei and his uh, defeat against the Kumans. So you don't want to miss the show. And towards the end of the show, if there is time remaining, we will look at the Russian bathhouse, the Bonias the importance of the Russian bathhouse and its long-standing tradition that still exists today. So don't go anywhere. Keep it locked. James is on the air. You're in tune to 90.5 WHRW Binghamton. Title of the show again is Story Traditions with James. And this semester, we're looking at Russian literature. Um, Don't go anywhere. We're still in Kiev and Rus, and we're making our way out of Kiev and Rus into modern times. This song is titled... South Russian solo song from Belgorod province. After the song, I will return. Oh! 
And that was South, a South Russian solo song from Belgorod province. And now we turn to our first story of the day. We are picking up from where we left off last week, the blinding of Vasilko. And this story is, is a tragic story dealing with the struggles between princes and um, Suavitopolk and David um, fight against their own cousin, Prince Vasilko who ruled Volinia and Galicia in Western Russia. And the struggle ended with the blinding of Vasilko by his cousins. And the story I will reread for you is told to the chronicler by the priest Vasily and is one of the most dramatic narratives of the, of, in the tale of bygone years. And the tale of bygone years belonged to a, the entire collection of the chronicles. So here it is. I will reread it to you, and then we will discuss this, and then we will transition into the epic. Here it is. Satan now incited certain men to report to David, son of Igor, that Vladimir was conspiring with Vasilko against Suavitipolk and against himself. David gave credence to their false words and endeavored to stir up Suavitipolk against Vasilko, saying, who killed your brother, Yaropolk? Now he plots against me and against you, and has conspired with Vladimir. Take thought for your own head. Yatapolk was thus perturbed, and wondered whether these allegations were true or false. He was uncertain, and replied to David, If you speak all right, may God be your witness. But if you speak from motives of jealousy alone... God will punish you for it. Sviatopolk was concerned for his brother and himself and wondered whether the rumor were true. He finally believed David, who thus deceived Sviatopolk, and the two of them set out to plot against Vasilko. Now, Vasilko and Vladimir were ignorant of this fact. David remarked, however, that if he and Svatiopolk did not seize Vasilko, neither of them could be sure of the domains they then held, and Svatiopolk believed him. Vasilko arrived on November 4th, crossed over to Vaidobichi, and went to make his reverence to St. Michael in the monastery, where he also supped. He pitched his camp on the Rudista at evening. He returned to the camp when it was morning, Sviatopolk urged him by messenger not to depart before his name day. Vasilko refused, urging that he could not wait that long or there would be dis- disorder in his domain. Then David begged him not to depart, but rather to obey his elder kinsman. Vasilko, however, was still reluctant to comply. Then David remarked to Sviatopolk, See? He sets no store by you, though he is in your power. If he departs to his domain, you shall see whether he does not seize your cities of Turov and Pinsk and other towns which belong to you. Then you will perhaps remember my words. Call the men at once and take him prisoner, then deliver him over to me. Satyapolk followed his advice and sent word to Vasilko, saying, If you are unwilling to remain until my name day, at least come and embrace me now, and then we shall meet with David. Vasilko promised to go, and did not perceive the treachery which David was planning against him. 
Vasilko thus mounted his horse and rode off. One of his servants then met him and urged him not to go because the princes were plotting to take him prisoner. But Vasilko heeded him not as he thought to himself, How? How can they intend to take me prisoner? They joined me in the oath that if any one of us should attack another, the Holy Cross and all of us should be against him. Having thus reflected, he crossed himself and said, God's will be done. He thus rode with a small escort to the prince's palace. Swaziatopolk came out to meet him, and they went into the hall. David entered, and all sat down. Then Svatiopolk begged Vasilko to remain until the day of St. Michael, November 8th. Vasilko replied, I cannot remain, kinsman. I have already ordered my camp to move forward. David sat silent as if struck dumb till Svatiopolk invited Vasilko to breakfast with them, and Vasilko accepted. Then Svatiopolk said, Remain seated here a moment while I go out and make certain dispositions. He thus went out, leaving David and Vasilko alone together. Vasilko tried to open a conversation with David, but there was no voice nor hearing in him, for he was afraid and had treachery in his heart. After he had sat a while, he inquired where his kinsman was. The answer was given that he was standing in the vestibule. David then rose and asked Vasilko to remain seated while he went in search of Swatiapolk. He thus stood up and went thence. When David had thus gone out, others seized upon Vasilko and fettered him with double fetters, setting guards over him by night. This treachery took place on November 5th. In the morning, Swatiapolk assembled the boyars and the men of Kiev and informed them of what David had told him to the effect that Vasilko had been responsible for his brother's death, was plotting with Vladimir against him and intended to kill him and seize his cities. The boyars and the populace replied, It behooves you, O prince, to protect your own life. If David spoke aright, let Vasilko suffer the penalty. If David has spoken falsely, let him suffer the vengeance of God and answer before God. When the abbots heard of the circumstances, they interceded with Swatiopolk and Vasilko's behalf. But he prote- protested that it was all David's affair. When David heard all of this, he urged that Vasilko should be blinded on the ground that if Swatiopolk did nothing and released Vasilko, neither he himself nor Swatiopolk would be able to retain their thrones much longer. Swatiopolk was in favor of releasing him. But David kept close watch over him and would not consent. During the night, they thus took Vasilko to Belgorod, which is a small town ten versts from Kiev. They transported him fettered in a cart, and after removing him from the vehicle, they led him into a small house. As he sat there, Vasilko saw a torque sharpening a knife and then comprehended that they intended blinding him. He cried out to God with loud weeping and groaning, then came the emissaries of Swatiopolk and David, Snovid, the son of Itzek, the squire of Swatiopolk and Dimitri, David's squire, and they laid a rug upon the floor. After they had spread it, they seized Vasilko and endeavored to overthrow him. 
he offered a violent resistance so that they could not throw him. Then others came and cast him down. They bound him and laid upon his chest a slab taken from the hearth. Though Snovid, the son of Esek, sat at one end and Dimitri at the other, they still could not hold him down. Then two other men came, and after taking a second slab from the hearth, they too sat upon him and weighed upon him so heavily that his chest cracked. Then a Tork, Berendi by name, a shepherd of Swatiapolk, came up with his knife, and though intending to strike him in the eye, missed the eye entirely and cut his face. This scar Vasilko bears to this day. Afterward, however, he struck him in one eye and took out the pupil, and then in the other eye and also removed the pupil of the latter. At that moment Vasilko lay as if dead. They raised him in the rug, laid him fainting in the wagon, and carried him off to Vladimir. While he was being thus, thus transported, they happened to halt with him at a marketplace after they had crossed the bridge at the town of Swihiden. They took off his bloody shirt and gave it to a priest's wife to wash. After she had washed it, the woman put it on him while the others were eating, and she began to weep, for he was as if dead. He heard her weeping and inquired where he was. They replied that the town was Swihizden. He then begged for water. They gave him some, and after he had drunk the water, full consciousness returned to him. He remembered what had had occurred, and feeling his shirt, he lamented. Why? Why? Why did you take it from me? I had rather have met my death and stood before God in this bloody shirt. When they had eaten, they rode on swiftly in the cart with him, and over a rough road, for it was then the month of Gruden, called November. They arrived with him at Vladimir's on the sixth day. David accompanied them and behaved as if he had captured some prize. They quartered Vasilko in the Vakif palace and placed over him a guard of thirty men, as well as two servants of the prince named Ulan and Kolchko. And ladies and gentlemen, that's the story, The Blinding of Vasilko. And there are many themes running through the story, but one main theme that I want to really zero in on is the theme of this fratricidal feuding. So fighting amongst the princes to reach the top. And in this case, um, fear forged this fight amongst the princes. Remember, Swatiopolk and David are cousins of Prince Vasilko. So they're family members fighting amongst each other to because they're 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 either fighting for a high position in government or they're fighting because they're afraid the, the other person will get that position in government. And what do you think that does for the Russian community, the Russian civilization in early Kiev? As you can imagine, a country divided is a country weakened. United we stand, divided we fall. No other slogan befits early Russian Kiev. And they did fall while they were divided. At this point, during this division, this fight, this infighting between the princes, the Mongols were able to just come into Kiev and dominate Kiev. The only city uh, or principality that 
remain independent or remain out, out outside of the leash, uh, leash, leashes of the Mongols was Novgorod. But the rest of Kiev and Rus was pretty much dominated by uh, Mongols. And this domination was primarily due to this constant infighting among the princes. And I want to take that and move into the epic. Okay, so the Blinding of Vasilko, something that is in the Chronicles, and it highlights, we've looked at the various stories of the Chronicles in the past, and this one, I think, really provides a good foundation for the epic because it deals with the issue of fratricidal feuding. And what is an epic? Well, by definition, by definition, an epic is noting or pertaining to a long poetic composition, usually centered upon a hero in which a series of great achievements or events is narrated in elevated style. So the the fact that um, the Chronicles deal with this type of situation, the fratricidal feuding, works well for an epic because who becomes the hero in the epic? One of the princes who is being fought against or one of the princes who is fighting against his own brother or cousin or family member. And it works well for Lay of Igor's campaign. The theme of fratricidal feuding is is center key and is the center centerpiece for understanding Lay of Igor's campaign. And what is the Lay of Igor's campaign all about? It's an unsuccessful raid by Russian princes against the nomadic Turkic tribe of Kumans. Why is it an epic? Well, it's very poetic. Okay, think of the Iliad, for example. Homer's The Iliad. That's an epic. A very poetic piece. The repetitions, there, there, there are certain events that are constantly repeated in a certain form, in a certain fashion, to lure the audience member, to lure the, the, the reader. And that, too, is present in the lay of Igor's campaign. Uh, the origins of the Russian epics, they're unknown. No one really knows where these origins come from, where the origins of the Russian epics reside. But um, you can be assured that it's well connected to the Russian chronicles that we've been looking at over the past two weeks. And lastly, some of some songs, they're Russian epic songs known as Bailini. And the Bailinis contain heroic events, um, um, events that took place between Kiev and Rus up until Russian um, Imperial Russia, so on and so forth. So we're going to now move into the Russian epic titled Lay of Igor's Campaign. When I return after this song, we will look closely at the three structural planes of this piece, Lay of Igor's Campaign, and I want to make sure that you're keeping in mind this, the theme of fratricidal feuding. Because like I said, a, a country divided is a country that is easily conquered. And if that theme is something that is, was present in the Chronicles, you can be assured that it is present in the epic. And the epic proves that point, that because of fratricidal feuding, Russia was heavily weakened, and it allowed for 
the invasion of, of nomads and crusaders and so on and so forth. So don't go anywhere. You know, the number is 777 in the 607 area code. I am James. Title of the show is Story Traditions with James. And this week we are looking at, we, 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 we wrapped up our discussion on the blinding of Vasilko and its role in really shedding light on the theme of fratricidal feuding, infighting among the princes, brothers, cousins. And we're now making our way into the epic. And this theme of fratricidal feuding is found in the epic. And if there's time remaining, we will look at a Russian tradition that's quite interesting. The bathhouse, something that is rooted in the concept of motherly love, motherly care, so on and so forth. It's very fascinating. Fascinating. I was um, surprised to learn about it. I enjoyed learning about it, and it's something I will share with you if there's time this week. If there's no time this week, we will look at it next week. Next week when I return, my show will be an, an entire hour and a half. This week it will only be an hour because we have to air the BU women's basketball game. Okay, so for the next 34 minutes, I want to try to get as much in. So the next song for our break is titled North Russian, I'm sorry, South Russian Wedding Dance Song from the Belgorod Province. Keep it locked. I'll be right back. And that was South Russian Wedding Dance, Song, Belgorod Province. And now we're looking at the Russian epic. And I, as I pointed out earlier, one of the key or well-known Russian epics is titled um, The Lay... I'm sorry, The Lay... Of Igor's campaign. And it's really, it's about an an unsuccessful raid of Russian princes against the nomadic Turkic tribe of Kumans. 
Again, it's very poetic. The origins are unknown. And um, there are three structural planes that I want to identify. These planes include one. Concerns the destiny of Prince Igor, his campaign, his defeat, and escape from the Kumans. This um, sums up pretty much the first portion of, of the story. And I, I don't want to focus on the, fir- the first portion. I want to make the connection between fratricidal feuding and the downfall of Russia. The second structural plane consists of portents and lamentations over the outcome of the campaign and Russia's fate. Okay, so people were saddened by what happened. Um, Russia lost the battle. And the third structural plane consists of the author's admonitions to the princess to unite and his uh, censor of their feuding. And it, it is that point I want to zero in on some more. The author, who is also unknown, laments and, and wants the princess to unite. The, the, the defeat, the Russian defeat, was due to this infighting among the princes. I want to start first with the Russian defeat, and then we'll look at the author's laments. The Russian defeat. And so it is to be. There were battles and campaigns, but there had never been such battle as this. From early morning to night, from evening to dawn, there flew tempered arrows, swords rained down upon helmets, Frankish lances resound, and all of this in the unknown prairie, in the Kuman land. The black earth under the hooves was strewn with bones, was covered with blood, grief overwhelmed the Russian land. What noise do I hear? What clinkling comes to my ears? So early in the morning, before the dawn? It is Prince Igor who has led away his troops. He is saddened by the fate of his brother, Sevelodod. They fought for one day, they fought for another day. At noon, on the third day, Igor's banners fell. Here on the shores of the swift river, Kayala, the brothers parted. The wine of this bloody banquet was drunk to the last drop. The Russians gave their guests to drink from the same cup. They died for the Russian land. The grass withered from sorrow and the saddened trees drooped earthward. That's the Russian defeat. A nice description of what, you know, for the time it was written, and again, it is an epic, so it, you'll, you'll have um, a lot of metaphors, a lot of the poetic figures that are commonly found in epics. Uh, repetition, the, 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 the lines. Unfortunately, you can't see how it is written, um, but it is written in verse form, in strophe form. Um, you, you hear nature is intertwined 
with with the, the the events taking place as the Russians are defeated, how the moods of the people are 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 swayed and so on and so forth, making it a very poetic piece, which is um, an element of the epic poetry. Now I want to share the author's laments because the author is protesting against the fratricidal feuding. The author is urging the princes to unite. Under such conditions can Russia once again regain its strength, regain its valor, regain its vigor, and regain its status in the world. Remember, Kiev is a very... Uh, Kiev and Rus was a, a well-respected uh, civilization. Many people traveled and trade was, was going on in Kiev and Rus. So here is the Arthur's laments. And now, brethren, unhappy times have arrived. The prairie overwhelmed the Russian forces. Grief reigned over the forces of God, Dasbog's grandsons. Grief, like a maiden, entered the land of Trojan. She splashed her swan wings at the river Don by the blue sea. And splashing, she put an end to the times of good fortune. The prince's fight against the infidel came to an end, and brother said to brother, This is mine, and that also is mine. And the princes began to argue about trifles, calling them important matters, and began to create discord among, among themselves. The infidels from all lands began to invade the Russian land and to win victory. Oh, oh, too far toward the sea has the falcon flown, slaying birds, and Igor's valiant regiments cannot be resurrected. He is mourned by grief and sorrow, and they spread across the Russian land, shaking the embers in the flaming horn. The Russian women begin to lament, saying, no more. Our dear husbands, can you be envisioned in our thoughts, nor can you reappear in our dreams, nor nor can you be seen in, with our eyes, and never again shall we jingle gold and silver. And brethren, the city of Kiev began to groan from grief, and the city of Chernigov also from their misfortune. Anguish spread over the Russian land. Deep sadness flew through the Russian land, and the princes created discord among themselves. The infidels, victoriously invading the Russian land, levied a tribute of one ver from each household. All this happened because Igor and Sevelodod, two valiant sons of Svatislav, once more revived evil forces once subdued by their grandfather, Prince Swatislav. The stern prince of Kiev kept everyone in fear and awe, for as a tempest, his powerful regiments and his Frankish swords defeated and attacked the Kuman lands. They tramp trampled under Kuman hills and ravines, made turbid Kuman rivers and lakes, dried out Kuman streams and marshes, like a tornado, he seized Khan Kobiak from amongst his great iron regiments on the shore of the sea bay, and Kobiak fell in the city of Kiev, in the hall of Prince 
Swatioslav. Now the Germans and the Venetians, the Greeks and the Moravians, sing the glory of Prince Swatioslav and reproach Prince Igor, who has lost his fortune on the bottom of the river Kayala and filled the Kuman rivers with Russian gold. And here Prince Igor exchanged his golden saddle of a prince for the saddle of a slave. And the cities and the cities became saddened, and joy vanished. And that was an excerpt from the Lay of Igor's Campaign, The Author's Laments. And this is written by someone who has experienced, who lived during Kievan times, and who experienced the constant fratricidal feuding, who saw how this um, infighting among the brothers led to the demise of the Kievan civilization and enslaved those who were under the Kievan civilization. Okay, They became slaves to the Mongols and all of the other invaders, the Kumans, so on and so forth. So that is a constant theme, this infighting. The, the Russian fratricidal feuding is something I really want you to narrow in on because, and remember, because as we move forward with our literature and we read Dostoevsky and we read um, um, Tolstoy, we're going to see these themes. And a lot of their writing is based, not based, but it's highly influenced on the Russian chronicles and the Russian epics. Um, some other themes that we're, we're noticing in the Russian epics that I want to share with you today include the blinding, the, the eyesight, the, the eye thing. What's going on there? As, as we understand Russian literature more and more, that, that um, um, motif will reappear and reappear and we'll, we will open our eyes, <laughs> no pun intended, and get a better better. Uh, insight, get, gain better insight into what that motif really means. But for now, understand that the blinding of someone may actually lead to the blocking out of the rest of the world and a forced reflection of oneself. So th- that may may appear um, as we move forward with Russian literature. We're still in early Russian civilization. Um, another piece. Or another type of literature we're going to look at um, quickly, well, not maybe not today, but is the ideological writings, writings that influenced ideologies. So while the Russian chronicles may have been used to Christianize Russia, it did infuse a great deal of ideology or way of thinking into the Russian minds. But as the civilization progressed and grew and expanded, new ideologies came in and new types of, of, of literature came in, um, new types of writing. So it was not all based on religion. And one type of – one story that focuses on this new type of writing is The White Cow. Tale of the White Cow, okay, dealing with ideology. Russia, at one point in Russian history, Russia was prophesied to become the third Rome, and there will be no Rome after, the third empire. 
Why? How did that come to be? Where did this prophecy come from? It's all based on ideology. But that ideology, again, goes back to the Bible. Okay, and we will look at that next week. Okay, and then we will make our segue into the Russian fairy tales, the Russian folklore, before we actually get into some na- um, novels and by some of the, the giants of literature. So keep that in mind. When I return, we do have some time to discuss the Russian bathhouse, a fascinating topic, something very unique to the Russian culture. Many Americans are not aware of the Russian bathhouse, and um, it's something I want to share with you, my understanding of it, at least, I'd like to share with you. And I would like to discuss an article written on it, which attempts to draw a connection between the bathhouse and sadomasochism. Interesting. We'll look at that article after a few songs. Keep it locked. You're in tune to 90.5 WHRW Binghamton. Title of the show is Story Traditions with James. I am your host, James. This semester, we're focusing on Russian literature, everything from Kievan Rus up until the early 20th century. So n- the number here is 777-2137. You're always welcome to chime in. Anything you want to discuss on pertaining to Russian literature, you're more than welcome to do so. I'll put you on the air, and we'll engage in, in, in a discussion. All right, keep it locked. Uh, Some more Russian songs along coming up right now.
Там, кад грожус, там, кад грожей проще, там, кад вандянели наши. У вас же там ба, чик подарил пацик, гра-гра-гра-гра-гра-гра-гра-гра-гра-гра-гра-гра-гра-гра-гра-гра-гра-гра-гра-гра-гра-гра-гра-гра-гра-гра-гра-гра-гра-гра-гра-гра-гра-г
or a dip in a nearby river or lake or a cold shower. The hot bath may then be repeated. So, I mean, you've all seen sweat baths. So it's something along those lines, ex- along those lines except that there is the addition of this hitting, this flagellation with the birch twigs. And the birch twig itself has an interesting history. Um, but I want to look at an article that was written by Daniel Rancouve, uh, titled The Slave Soul of Russia. I'm sorry, the essay is titled Born in a Bania. And a Bania is the bathtub, the Russian name for the bathhouse. The, the Masochism of Russian Bathhouse Rituals. That's the title of the essay, and it is found in the book The Slave Soul of Russia. And in this article, um, Daniel argo- argues that there's a tint of masochism, there's a masochistic element in this ritual. And here are some of his points. Um, um, he conjures up the cries of pain delight uttered by peasant bathers as they would lash one another in the traditional bania. Gradually, with growing excitement, the, bather, the bathers would pass the venik, the birch twigs, from hand to hand, not letting a moment go by without using it. The sweaters would cry out rapturously, rapturously, Auk! Ach! Oh! Ah! and would ask those down below to put on more steam. Okay? So he's arguing that those noises alone reflect some sort of masochism, an element of masochism. He he then goes on to suggest that the... How is this related to masochism? Well, it ties into the use of the birch. Why are they using this birch? This birch is a very historical element it's it's an element of of russia that that has a a um a strong history and a strong connection and to understand its relationship we turn to the works of vladimir prop we will look at vladimir prop later on but vladimir prop was a structuralist who analyzed a hundred folk uh, russian folk tales and he was able to put together something called the 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 functions, the various functions of the folktale, how a folktale works and how it is put together. And it, it is something I've discussed in my previous shows when I looked at um, Native American literature and a variety of other um, 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 folktales. But he argues now that... The birch tree thrown into a pond ensures adequate rainfall for the summer. So here it is. The harvest depended on earth and water and on their union. The same little birch that was supposed to provide the fields with the earth, earth's birthing strength was obliged to provide them with the moisture, without which the earth will not give birth. So this birch tree serves as the intermediary between earth and nature, um, between water and earth, okay? In order for something to grow, the earth must meet the moisture, and that birch tree provides the moisture for the earth, that water. So, what do you imagine? You can imagine a motherly role, okay? The womb, 
is filled with water and so on and so forth. And you can really draw parallels between the role of the birch tree and the role of a mother. But who, if not a mother, could this imaginary uh, possibly refer to? This image. If the birch was not a mother herself, then at least she was a midwife who by some contagious fertility assisted Mother Earth in producing a crop of rye. Okay, so the birch tree represents the mother. And then the author goes in to tie it in with how it connects with um, the, 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 the daughters. The daughters use the birch tree to hit things, to break things. They even rich, rip the birch tree apart. Why? Why are they ripping the birch tree apart? Well, part of the reason is, according to this author, is that there's this tension between young girls and their mothers. There's, um, and this is something we see in American society as well. Young girls going through puberty or you know their their teenage years or whatever, they they sort of rebel against their mom, and you know think that they they they're ready for the world and so on. But there is always this tension between the daughter and the mother, specifically the daughter and the mother, and the young girls who take the birch trees and rip them apart as a ritual. What they're essentially doing is ripping apart their mother, um, and I'm metaphorically speaking, similar in a similar fashion to a teenager arguing with her mother um, in high school or junior high school whenever pu- puberty hits. Okay, so this ties into to the birch tree and the fact that the young girls are ripping apart the birch tree. What does that mean? They're getting pleasure. From ripping apart the birch tree. They're, they're getting pleasure from destroying their quote-unquote mother. Isn't that... When you look at that, it, it's easy to conclude that it's a sadistic ritual in a way. Okay? And I, I would like to continue on with this, but my show has to come to an end. I will pick up on this next week as we look at ideological writings, and I will conclude my discussion on the bathhouse and what else takes place in the bathhouse? We looked. Uh, I mentioned lullaby, births, and weddings. The bathhouse plays an important role in these areas. And while it doesn't really refer to literature, it's still an exciting, fun fact to to understand. And it does come up in in um, Dostoevsky's works. And we'll look at that later on. So now we conclude the program, and we turn it over to WHRW special sports events, women's basketball game. <laughs> 